0: And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 168, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And welcome to this week's show. Now, today, we've got so much that we need to cram into this one hour-ish that this podcast is going to last this week. Not only are we going to cover one company that changed the face of British video games back in the day, not just two, but in fact, three huge companies with our guest this week, Tim Cheney. Now, one of them is the company that was responsible for bringing, do you remember those really glamorous games that we'd hear about in America? Stuff like, you know, summer games and winter games and arcade stuff like, you know, Gauntlet and OutRun. Today, we're going to be talking about US Gold.
1: They were the all-American software company, weren't they? They kind of bought the stuff over, converted it for our home systems and uh, got that wider market.
0: And it was crazy because, I mean, you think stuff like, you know, OutRun, that was like a smash hit arcade title when that came oh, out. was huge, yeah. And the challenge of getting that running on, like, something like, you know, a ZX Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> but they managed it, you know, and they brought all these huge titles to our home. And then we're going to go into probably the biggest example of 90s hedonism in the British video games industry, Virgin Games.
1: Oh, yeah, well, they were virgin, weren't they? They were such a cool company originally started with the sex pistols you know they were really cool and the games that they produced my my god the quality of them uh beneath the steel sky was an absolutely fantastic one but also the lion king yeah. That's one of my favourite games. I, I was playing it actually last night.
0: Well, other stuff there. Race Cannon Fodder, you know, Seventh Guest as well that came out on Virgin. But the thing about it is, I mean, you've got to remember the 90s here in Britain. Um, and it's a bit hard to explain for people that might live outside the UK what it was like living here in the 90s. I mean, we had stuff like, you know, Lad's Magazines. Well, it, and... was, it was cool Britannia, wasn't yeah. it? It
1: was really popping off in the 90s. Uh, it isn't so much now, but we're hoping for that again.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the stories I've read about Virgin, the fact that, you know, um, maybe they used to bribe video games reviewers to get good reviews by including little packets of drugs inside releases of games. These
1: were a wild kind of early on anti-establishment kind of stuff. And, you know, Virgin, when you'd go in there, it would be your full solution. You'd be able to go in there. You'd probably be able to buy some clothing merchandise, buy your favourite record, go downstairs, buy your computer game and then buy a book on the history of the Sex Pistols or something. It's like your full kind of 90s media outlet, wasn't it, really?
0: Well, Tim's actually written a few stories about Virgin. Kind of, the, kind of the overarching title is, you know, Sex, Drugs and Video Games. So, um, you know, we're going to get all those stories. And also, Tim worked at Commodore as well, you know, in the UK. Like, yeah,
1: we do talk a lot about Commodore, but yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but talking about, you know, the fact when, when he, you know, was out there marketing the Vic-20, you know, those early days too. Yeah, so. they,
1: there wasn't even a
0: market there, was No, there? had to create it from scratch. So, a really interesting guest this week, Tim Cheney. the story of Commodore in the UK, US Gold and Virgin Games all coming up on the Retro Hour podcast. He'll be on in around 15 minutes from now. Now, we did mention Beneath a Steel Sky there as well. And um, people may have seen this online that there's actually a sequel finally coming out all these years later that we need to talk about in just a minute. And also, we're going to chat about playing... Nintendo GameCube games in virtual reality. This is now a thing. Now, before we get into this week's show, we always start by giving a big thank you to the people who support the podcast and allow us to keep coming here, bringing you amazing guests and giving you the retro gaming news every single week of the year. And they are our loyal donators. Now, if you'd like to get involved, we accept PayPal donations of any amount. And of course, it all goes back into the running of the show. And you can find that on the front page of our website. Click on the supporters link at theretrohour.com. And for doing that, you will earn your place in the retro hour hall of fame and get a mention on a future episode like this week gary Hever, jason herrick alex vasik and espen gulbeck who all made donations into the running of the show thank you so much guys it really means a lot to us and if you'd like to do the same you can find all that information on our website at theretrohour.com. now let's give another mention to a big supporter of the podcast as at the moment you'll know that wrestlemania is on
1: yeah, I saw actually that it was the first WrestleMania to actually have free
0: female yeah. uh, main wrestlers basically. I've got friends that are like really into wrestling, uh, like my buddy Ian who's actually in the next room from us now. He pulled an all-nighter, you know, to watch the start of WrestleMania. Yeah. It's like such a big thing. And you probably remember, I mean we're talking last week about in the early 90s, the height of WWF and Games like WrestleFest as well, that was, you know, a massive arcade game. I remember putting so many, like, you know, 10, Ps into that at the seaside with my friends back in the day.
1: Yeah, because we were talking about it last week and we actually mentioned one of the characters It uh, was a clown with loads of little yeah. guys. One of our listeners actually got in contact and said it was Doink the Clown. That was it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're sorry. here for right half an hour before, who was it again? Well, the reason we're talking about wrestling is, of course, WrestleMania is on right now. But also, the Retro Hour podcast this month to celebrate WrestleMania... We're brought to you by our good friends at Retro Soft Studios who are supporting us this month because they've got an amazing new retro wrestling game coming out called... Retromania Wrestling. Now, this is technically it's a spiritual successor to the 1991 arcade game Wrestlefest, and you're talking all the things that made Wrestlefest amazing: pick up and play arcade games, uh, 2D sprites, amazing backgrounds, fast-paced arcade-style gameplay, and there is going to be 12 to 16 wrestlers that are playable at launch. Now, we mentioned a few last week as well, but they have actually added a few more to the roster this week as well: Blue World Order, Stevie Richards, Hollywood Nova. And the Blue Meanie have all been added to the lineup too. So if you want to find out more about this, the game's in development right now. And we say, you know, if you love those old-school wrestling games, have a look at it. You've got to check out their website, RetromaniaWrestling.com. You can follow them on Twitter at RetroSoftStudio. And of course, we'll put a link in our show notes if you want to find out more about this game. Give it a look. You know, if you love those old-school games and you'll be helping out the podcast, you find those links in our show notes at the TheRetroHour.com. I really kind of love how they're getting these old
1: titles and adding new features and kind of bringing them... Back for the modern age but still retaining all that old schoolness
0: and the stuff that you know in there that you couldn't do back in the day as well which i love it's kind of you know it does retain that legacy of those games that you did love back then but also kind of putting a new spin on it and stuff that you thought oh, wish, i wish i wish could have done that back in 1991 so yeah definitely do check them out now let's get into beneath a steel sky it came out in 1994 originally didn't it
1: yeah, and this was a fantastic point and click adventure. I absolutely loved it. And I, I remember having the speech version. It was very slow on the Amiga CD32. Um, but if you had a PC version, it's much nicer. And it was very funny. Actually. Yeah. It was a hilarious game um, set in a cyberpunk world. And I always remember that little Joey kind of robot following you and you had to build
0: him up out of scrap. I think that's about as far as I ever got. You had to put him in like a vacuum cleaner shell or something, if I remember rightly. Um, But yeah, that game, I was a huge fan of it as well. It was kind of very, a bit kind of a a dystopian future, a bit 1984, a bit kind of Blade Runner, wasn't it? Um, And I think I first played it when I got the Amiga format put a demo on their cover disc And it was kind of the first level. Do you remember that bit where you're at the top and, like, the security guard comes in and there's a big, like, crunchy machine and they're trying to find you and you hold on to a back of a door and you hide away from them. And like you said, it had such good atmosphere. And you mentioned the talkie version then. I was playing that probably last summer um, because with WHD load now, you can put the whole file on there. You don't have to wait for the CD access times and everything. And it's a really compelling story. Very good. Uh, But now, all these years later, 25 years on from the original, we're getting a sequel. Now, this is called Beyond a Steel Sky. Ah. And it's by Revolution Software, who were actually the team behind the original. Yeah, because we had
1: Steve Ince on the show as well. And uh, this is Charles Cecile, who was the main designer of Beneath a Steel Sky originally.
0: Now, this new game, I mean, they've only put out like a minute long trailer. And it's got some really interesting art style. I mean, it's got, you know, that, that kind of comic book style. Um, it's by Dave Gibbons who did all the, the background art for the original game as yeah. well. So, you know, it does kind of retain that kind of feel. The only thing is it's very different to the original.
1: Yeah, I've been looking at it and to me this looks more of the kind of Fortnite, No Man's Sky, modern kind of style of animation. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't look very cyberpunky to me. But then, I don't know, this could be early shots or or you know it it might work
0: yeah, it's original. the original thing...
1: I, I i'm too pixel strong yes yeah. <laughs> uh...
0: well that's the thing. i think a lot of people were expecting it to be kind of a thimbleweed part kind of you know new point and click game which yeah. you no know, we've talked about it before that that genre has had a bit of a comeback in recent years but this isn't i mean this is it looks like it's kind of a third person game isn't it it is, um, and
1: you know what I'm going to say, I, I, I'll probably regret this, it reminds me of those really bad Syndicate trailers that you used to get back okay. in the days, like Syndicate Wars and uh, stuff like that, or the, the latest remakes of Syndicate. But I just, uh, maybe with a different texture pack, it could completely, or even different colour, settings, it could completely change the whole thing. I think it needs to be darker, <laughs> and that's <Yeah. laughs> my, uh, my vision of cyberpunk, yeah.
0: Well, it's getting a bit of a mixed reaction online, and I think a lot of people are disappointed that, yeah, okay, it's not a point-and-click game, kind of, you know, a yeah. direct success to the original book. But, but we
1: are also talking about a 50-second trailer yeah. here. That's all we've seen of the game, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it could be, I mean, the thing about these games is, I think the story is what makes it. You know, the medium of how you play the game can kind of become irrelevant when you get into the story. And once you get the humour going
1: and you get the kind of... Yeah, and the connection with the characters. And obviously, with Charles on board, this is going to be
0: part of it. And we haven't really seen any of the story or anything yet. Like you said, it is literally that one kind of one-minute trailer. And there are quite a lot of negative comments on the YouTube video now. You know, a little disclaimer here. We did invite the guys onto the show. We've been in touch with them and invited them on for a chat. They didn't get back to us. So, you know, we're having to kind of go from what we've seen in articles and that kind of thing. But, Um, you know,
1: they're saying that this is actually a comic book-styled graphics uh, for 4K and HDR. So it is a full-targeted kind of uh, thing. And, you know, this could be something completely new. Yeah, and I... We we never know.
0: Well, I think, you know, when we do get... I'm confident that they can deliver a good story. And providing you can actually play the game and it's immersive, I don't really think it's a big deal that it's changed kind of genre, as it were, you know. It's not point and click anymore. It's now a a third-person adventure game. And there's some nice-looking stuff also in the trailer, but just stuff like...
1: He's got bots following him, yeah. or or small creatures. There might be interactivity with the environment. He's got uh, tools and uh, pieces of equipment that seem a lot more interactive than they did in the point of click. So you've probably got a lot
0: more options of how to play. But yeah, it's a 2019 video game. Yeah, you know yeah, exactly, so, yeah. exactly, and. There is going to be nods in there as well to fans of the original. I'm sure Joey will make an appearance, for example. (laughs) So I think we wait and see. I think it's great that it's getting a sequel. I mean, I love Beneath the Steel Sky. Yeah, yeah, I
1: I think that's great. You know, the worst thing they could have done would just believe it, you know. Even even if nobody likes this in the end, maybe they'll remaster the original
0: you never know I don't know the only bit I'm a bit curious about is apparently it's coming out they've revealed it's going to be released on Apple Arcade so so far they've oh, only announced okay. iOS and Apple TV as the platforms but, which but
1: if you think about that mobile platforming how big that is as well like iPads and stuff like that it might be uh aim for that I don't
0: know well I mean, I'm sure it'll eventually get ported to Switch and PS4 yeah, and all so, that yeah. So maybe it's a bit of an Apple exclusive at first but yeah I must admit I don't game quite all that heavily on my Apple TV no. <laughs> I would say so we'll keep an eye on it and if, if the guys do get back to us we'll have them ones to talk get a bit more get your pippin about out <laughs> <laughs> I'd love a pippin actually I've, I've seen them oh, really? at shows. <laughs> there's not many games to play. You know me, though. I love those like, yeah, awful failed yeah. consoles. Yeah, I, I like I the controllers. Of... They look weird. Yeah, they're actually, not that yeah. bad. The controllers, but I don't think there's many games that you can play on them. But yeah, that is kind of a little uh, gap in my collection at the moment. Now, one system that was uh, a great console back in the day, the Nintendo GameCube. Um, some amazing titles on that system. Even the Wii. I mean, I was never a fan of the Wii's method of control. I hated the Wii most. But, I mean, there, there is some really good often undiscovered titles on the Wii. I think it's not really a... Maybe it's an age thing. It hasn't quite crossed over into retro yet, and maybe a lot of the games on there don't quite get the respect that they deserve. It does feel a bit of kind of an untapped kind of market sometimes. But you've talked to me before about this Dolphin um, emulation suite. Now, this is an open-source emulator that can run GameCube, it can run Wii games. But now... They figured out a way to get GameCube games running in virtual reality.
1: Yeah, so this is absolutely insane. Um, I'm using a HTC Vive at yeah. the moment, and I've, I've found a program that I recommend to everybody, which is called Revive, which basically uh, is a like compatibility layer that works with the Oculus stuff. Okay. So I can run all the Oculus stuff. So I was like, okay, this has got a compatibility layer. So what they've done is they've made one of these for Dolphin. Yeah. which is the GameCube emulator. So what it will probably do is project two pictures in each eye and really puts you inside the game. But also, interestingly, it skins your HTC Vive controllers with little uh, Nintendo GameCube-looking skins in the virtual reality. <laughs> and you have the buttons it turns into a D-pad and stuff like that. Um, It looks really interesting. There's a review here on PC Gamer and there's been a lot of videos of guys using Mario Kart, uh, which was uh, sent by Atronic, one of our listeners on Discord. He actually sent that. But there's an article here on PC Gamer which is talking about how all these different games are now supporting it. So they're talking about the experience with Metroid Prime. And that was a first-person shooter, wasn't it? Yeah, F-Zero. And Pikmin is supposed to be awesome with it.
0: (laughs) See, Pikmin, I love Pikmin anyway. Um, Pikmin 3 was the last one I played on the Wii U. That needs to come out on the Switch, you know, because that's such a good game. That's, that's kind of a, it's a puzzle game where you get these little aliens and you got to make them do different things. But, I mean, you think all these games that did come out in that era on the GameCube, they were mostly all 3D games. So yeah. I guess, you know, I can kind of see why they would probably lend themselves quite well to running in virtual reality. It's crazy, though, to think about it, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, you could,
1: you could do this... Emulation layer on like loads of loads of different pieces of software win uae or you could have it on any kind of emulator and then enter your old game and play it from a completely new perspective
0: yeah that, with that original code i mean what's interesting is i mean i'm looking at this article on pc gamer and i was a bit skeptical when you've sent this article i thought oh yeah you know it, it probably yeah it might work but i bet it's an awful experience but they've gone on about how good it actually is and how i yeah, yeah. didn't expect it to actually work this well and that was
1: crazy when i installed the um revive I thought, okay, I'm emulating something here. This isn't, you know, there's going to be a little bit of lag. There wasn't a frame of lag yeah. between any of it. So it's, it's fantastic, yeah. And obviously, it's actually going to be a lot less demanding than um, what you're actually probably doing in VR anyway. So if that's you can hilarious. run that stuff, I'm sure you can run a couple of Game Cubes at the
0: same time. And that's one thing I do love about the emulation scene, the fact that they can give you new ways to experience your favorite games and play them in ways that you never dreamed possible yeah it's amazing all the
1: the the way that they're kind of fitting new technologies to emulate us now it's like playstation 2 ones with anti-aliasing added on top of it and all these extra uh, bloom effects and hd textures it's crazy isn't
0: it scaling pong up to 4k (laughs) yeah i saw
1: i saw a 4k oh what was it gta 3 yeah, last night and guys were going rad. I was like, it's 4K, but you still can't swim in the water. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, there are still some limitations yeah. in there, but it looks a really cool project. And there's actually a little tutorial on Reddit um, of how to get it all up and running and everything. So I'll put a link to all that. I've got to um, give it a go. Oh, you, you yeah. you're so so do. And let us know next week what you think of it. A vomit everywhere after Mario <laughs> Kart. <laughs> yeah, Mario Kart can send me a bit um, dewy yard at the best of times. Get hit by her shell. Uh, <laughs> see what happens. It yeah, rabbit comes with a bruise on his back. What happened? Yeah. It was a bit too realistic. Run into a wall. <laughs> So if you want to find out how to get that up and running, I'll put the story and all the links in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into the story of US Gold, Virgin, Commodore UK with Tim Cheney, let's talk a bit about a website from back in the day. and An interesting article that the BBC have actually been running this week. And they're talking about the, the million-dollar homepage.
1: Yeah, because the main thing that they're talking about is kind of why there's so little left of the internet. Now, we talked about the old net the yeah. other day which was a website that looked through the archive stuff but you know they're saying people saying oh i'm gonna archive my pictures by putting them on facebook that's not archiving it no. because facebook might not be here well, look at
0: google plus <laughs> yeah, that yeah exactly
1: that's exactly what they're saying look at google plus and they're talking about one website in particular which i really remember and i'm really nostalgic about which was the million dollar Homepage, which was the idea in the 90s that we all wished we'd had yeah, well,
0: this was 2005 it launched, because oh, yeah. I, uh, I remember my friend Paul and I, just after uni, we were looking at this website thinking, first of all, like you said, wish we came up with that idea. <laughs> but I remember us watching that every day refresh, and it'd he, come through, and you'd be like, oh, someone else is on there now, look, they fill that square there, and we'd see it gradually filling up. Yeah,
1: so the idea of this site was it was basically a million pixels of ad space, yeah. and each pixel... Uh, was in like you buy blocks of a hundred at one dollar per pixel. Yeah. So eventually the owner would have a million dollars, and you'd think, oh, well that wouldn't really work. People wouldn't advertise in it. But what happened was it just started getting so many hits, and it started the idea started spreading so much that it turned into this huge image, which is actually. Quite beautiful if you look at it now. Well, people, people you bought all the 90, uh, 90s kind of stuff. There's just like dating <laughs> in big letters.
0: Well, they, because um, a lot of companies did buy like several pixels, didn't they? So it wasn't, you know, the adverts weren't all limited to one pixel. But yeah, looking through, you had stuff like cheapflights.com, the Times newspaper, Yahoo, Astonatious yeah, uh, in here, and uh, Where's Wally in the middle of it? You know? So it was a snapshot of, yeah, 2005 on the web, really. but um, And the website's still up if you want to check it out. Out. but the reason this ties in is a saying how many of them on there you click on them and like they take you to dead links now probably half of the website because yeah we talked about the old net.com and you know the Wayback back machine and the internet archive only really archive from about well they say 96 in here but there is some sites come back to about 94 mm. but i mean what was sites running for a, a couple of years before that that we don't have images of but also if you think of this this is the kind of start of like
1: crowdfunding in a way because um After this, I remember iPods came out and there was all these students that would go, oh, I really like an iPod. Um, I've never seen one. What a beautiful device. And they'd write a blog about it and then suddenly all these Apple fanboys would have sent them the money for an iPod. And that was the real kind of start of like supporting and, uh, you know... uh, Actually, being able to get something out to the internet
0: and the early days of stuff going viral, really, yeah, vi-
1: going viral, definitely. Because I
0: remember, I think you know, we find out about the the million dollar homepage because <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no Facebook, not even MySpace was around then, you know, in, in the mainstream at least, anyway. And I, I remember you'd get like an email off a friend, and he'd be like, "Check this page out," and he'd look down, and it'd have like you know all the forwards of everyone else that it had been sent to, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> at the bottom of the email, like huge like, chain letters. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was crazy. So. And they do make a good point that there is kind of a lot of the very early web, you know, maybe talking like 92, 93, 94, that is missing mm. from the archives. But what I do think, and I've noticed this is, archive.org need to make it easier for you to submit your old websites to them. So I've got a few on like old CD-ROMs and stuff. I thought, well, they haven't got captures of this. But it's a bit difficult to actually send them but to them. Like if you talk, when we talked to Jason Scott
1: in our yep. interview, he mentioned that he had so much stuff that he just hasn't been able to process. That's the thing. So there may be tons of stuff. He he was talking about how he had half a Twitter. <laughs> like, you know, uh, there's tons of stuff out there. But I guess just the time alone to process it, and how much that costs to do in order this kind of stuff compared to. Having to work and live your life, you know.
0: Well, I guess he is trying to archive the internet. It's yeah, exactly. Thinking about it. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure over time the, these gaps will get completed. And, you know, but I just think there is stuff I've got on there. I mean, there probably is a way, but it'd just be nice if I could go, I've got, I've got uh, an image of this site from 1992. Let's upload it. You know, we we just you need of... to find our Dan's old letters to the Amiga magazines. <laughs> <See you>. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to read that. <laughs> so, uh, if you want to find out more about that, maybe have a little look at the uh, the million dollar homepage and get all nostalgic. I'll link that up in everything else we've talked about at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to uh, Tim Cheney, just a little reminder: do go and check out Retromania Wrestling. They are supporting the Retro Hour podcast this week. The spiritual successor to the 1991 arcade game Wrestlefest, with this brilliant new game from Retrosoft Studios. Now, their entire studio is built on putting a retro spin on modern games, and. This looks wonderful. I mean, I'm going to share a few shots, actually, because they put stuff out on Twitter all the time, kind of in the the development of what it looks like now. Check out Twitter and Facebook. I'll post a few on there, too. Because how much fun does this look?
1: Yeah, yeah, the artwork looks fantastic as well. It's really popping. And the different modes I kind of like seeing a cage there
0: exactly and 12 to 16 playable wrestlers at launch Um, we mentioned a few last week Hawk and Animal of the Road Warriors Tommy Dreamer Austin Idol Zack Sabre Jr so if you want to get a little look at this game in development and also uh, kind of keep up with where it's going if you're a big fan of wrestling and you love WrestleFest I mean you've got to check this out and of course it goes without saying you'll be helping the podcast as well we really appreciate their support so their website is RetromaniaWrestling.com and follow them on Twitter at RetroSoftStudio Right then, let's get the history of Commodore UK, US Gold and Virgin Games with this week's special guest, Tim Cheney. You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, and it is time for the main event, then time to get this week's special guest on, getting stories about some of the most infamous companies in British computing and video games, Commodore, US Gold, and then Virgin Games as well. So many stories that we're going to cram into this hour. Let's welcome on this week's guest. It's our pleasure to say hello to Tim Cheney. Good morning to you guys. Hey, Tim. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, as ready as i'll ever be for this uh, walk down memory lane <laughs> well we've got a lot to cram into this hour i mean your story i mean let's kind of start it when you joined commodore in yep. um, 1981 i was reading the section that you wrote in david pleasance's book about your time at commodore and i know you, you yep. started there when they originally started their home computer division um, selling the vic 20 but the job interview didn't go quite as smoothly as you expected then <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only tell that story um, because it may be it may be an inspiration to others, in so much that at the time I was selling um, uh, automotive chemicals. You know, our major brand was t which I'm sure you've used on your car to restore the color at some point in your life. Um, And, you know, the the Bible of the day to look for jobs was called The Grocer. I'm not even sure it's still around now, maybe. Um, Because that's where you got the uh, FMCG jobs, fast-moving consumer good jobs. And there was a job uh, advertised at Commodore, no idea who they were, selling a home computer, no idea what that was. Um, But the the job had uh, the title of Regional Sales Manager. Which sounded really good, and it had a Ford Cortina. And as as a salesman, you know what you're looking for: title and car. Yeah. I mean, it's basically it. So I, I was invited to an interview. Uh, I went to see. Uh, it, it was in a hotel which is now called something else, but it was called the Spider's Web at the time in on the Watford Bypass uh, to meet Paul Welsh. <clears throat> and it's one of those. It was really an ugly, ugly interview. I mean, he was just. Ripping into me about my CV and you know, I mean, how can you go into computers? You're selling, you know, chemicals now. And uh, anyway, it was it was one of those interviews that you, you know, the, the second you walk out the door, you know, it's a you know, it's going to complete you completely block it out because you think what a waste of time, you know. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think any more of it. I really did. Between get moving out of the hotel, to getting in my car, you know, i forgot forgotten about it. <clears throat> and um a couple of weeks later, I was at home. And uh, there was a call. And uh, I answered it and he said, hi, it's Paul. When really I'd blocked it so well, I couldn't remember who he was. Right. And he said, Paul Welsh, Commodore. We met a couple of weeks ago. I said, oh, yeah, that's a strange one to expect this call, whatever it's about. It may be just to, re- to ring me up, tell me I've got the worst CV he's ever <laughs> seen in his life. And he wanted to stick, stick the knife in. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah. He said, we met a couple of weeks ago in Watford. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, "I like to offer you the job," and I, I said, "What? You know, you'd like to offer, offer me the job? It was a, it was a terrible interview. You did nothing but harangue me for forty-five minutes." Uh He said, uh, "Yeah, yeah." He said, uh, "That's what I do with everybody." But out of all the people that I interviewed that day, you were the only guy that fought back.
0: No way. And
2: I and I did because I thought, well, I'm going to get this job anyway. This guy from the north. It's, you know, it's given me a hard time. So I've got nothing to lose. And, you know, in the words of Bob Dylan, if you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. Um, so I thought, well, I'm going to give some back here. And uh, yeah, I got the job, <laughs> which was a complete shock to me. And then I had to look at some magazines to see what a computer was. Well, obviously, in
0: 1981, I mean, Jack Tramiel was still running Commodore. Yeah. And um, What was it kind of like working for Jack's Commodore then? I heard he had stuff like, you know, 10-point code booklets that you had to follow and that kind of thing.
2: Jack's philosophy—I'm I'm, saying—I'm calling Jack as if I knew him intimately. I didn't, of course. I—I I once saw him, and was so scared, I kind of went to the toilet or something. Um, you know, was uh, was one. I mean, he had this kind of ten-point thing of which business is war. You don't have competitors; you only have enemies, and your job's to crush them. And obviously, treat every penny like like it's your own, which is a pretty, you know, a pretty obvious one from a Auschwitz uh, survivor. Um, and uh, I think they t- they took the view that, you know, the, 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 the Vic 20 and then the 64 that came afterwards was a kind of fad thing. It wasn't a serious long term business. So why they while they had kind of brand leading computers, our position was incredibly hard, incredibly intolerant um, and just downright aggressive. I mean, you know, you know, we gave no quarter. I mean, uh, you know, so we, we, we had a very uh hard attitude because i think they thought well you know this business will be over in a couple of years and then we we'll go back to making pets
1: well you were selling the vic 20 uh was that kind yeah. of an existing model for selling a computer in britain or did you no. have to kind of create that from scratch
2: well we, we absolutely created it because at the time there was no home computers uh in retail in the uk you know you have the zx81 um, that was that was a hobby you know kit uh kit based um machine you had the 82 that came out you know around the time that the vic 20 or you know but no we had to we were complete pioneers we were knocking on every door boots and smiths and tescos and uh, some retailers that were around then that are around now like weak fools and the co-op and well, the Co-op's still around i know in a different shape and you know we were just saying you know do you want to sell computers and uh there was a, it was really a cottage industry it was just starting and um yeah, I mean we we do every account that probably I, and I'm probably I think I'm right in saying this every retail account that ever sold a home computer started with the Vic 20. Well, what did
1: you think of the uh, C64 when it came around?
2: Well, as you know, I mean the C64 was an absolute game changer. Yeah, it started off that we got some in just before Christmas, which would have been Christmas 82, I guess, and um, you know, basically for a week, instead of selling, on the road selling, we were just delivering one per store. <clears throat> That's a demo unit, you know, for what was to come. And uh, I mean, it was, it was, as you know, it's a quantum leap. It was it was kind of being pitched at the time. It's like a half business, half fun. I and mean, as we know, it became all fun, all games around the world. And, you know, numbers differ, differ, whether they come from Jack Tramiel or they come from other sources. But it sold about 20 million uh, over its kind of three-year span. Uh, it was number one in the UK, that shadowed out, Germany, the lowland, low countries. Uh, it was just um, it was, it was a, a fantastic machine. And <clears throat> you got the first great games, really, really good-looking games uh, that came out of it, mainly from America, because they were working on discs. But also, the UK games business really started with the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum. And later came Alan Sugar, Alan Michael, you know, with his uh, concoction. Um, He sold about 3 million. Um, So, yeah, games were serious, you know, getting serious at last. But it's still, you've got to take it in context. When we think about the industry now, and it's this 116 billion dollar, you know, global industry. At the time, it was still perceived as a kind of cottage industry. I mean, it was still not serious. I mean, now it's bigger than music and it's bigger than film and video.
0: Well, one of your clients then was um, Jeff and Anne Brown at Centresoft in Birmingham. Um, how did that lead to you working at US Gold then?
2: I moved, I left the company, went to Computers, who had a, a machine called The Lynx. Um, better car, better title. Uh, I We couldn't sell it in England, so I, I got international orders I had about three million uh, pounds of orders, but the company couldn't make the product. You know, one of those kind of you know cash flow things. Um, so I thought, well, you know, there's, there's no future here. Even you know, so I went back. To, so I called Paul and said, this isn't working for me. Uh, and yeah, you know, I met him. I remember met him at the services in Newport, Pagnol, on Sunday morning, on his way back to the north. And uh, he said, well, you know, we want you back. You know, I like Paul. Liked me. I mean, it's you know, it's one of those kind of lucky things in life. He liked me. And I'd been promoted a couple of times. And he said, but we've only got software. Anyway, so I went back uh, to try and sell the software. And um, at the time, the you know, the customers were the the normal ones. But there was CenterSoft, and there was Tiger. And there was Webster's and there was MicroDealer. They were the kind of the big distributors at the time. And, and so I went up to Jeff uh, in Tipton before he, you know, moved to, you know, Holford Way and everything else. And uh, he basically said, look, Tim, I don't know anything about uh, Commodore software, really. you tell me what you know you think I should have and and just send it and send an invoice well of course, to a salesman that worked for Commodore, that was like manna from heaven yeah. yeah so I basically <clears throat> emptied the warehouses <clears throat> excuse me I went emptied the warehouses and <laughs> sent them down to him and uh, he didn't he didn't complain actually he paid the bill um, and then um, uh, it was just a Commodore thing that we took our best customers out for Christmas dinner you know so i i went i went to uh have a dinner with the jeff and ann in uh in birmingham and um yeah you, you know the usual stuff and then uh Anne turned around uh you know she was much more direct and forth forthright and you know she, she made her point said um would you like to join us i said well yeah but i'm a kind of i'm really a kind of hardware guy you know i mean i'm not software guy and at the time, you know, U.S. gold had only reached Beachhead. I say only; it was an incredible, incredible product. Um, but that was it, that was it. And uh, I said, "But why me? You know, you know, why me?" And she said, "That you're the only person that's ever stitched us up. <laughs> so we want you on our side, stitching up everyone else." So um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I, I left. I mean, that, that was the second time. Uh, I left Paul and actually the third because I was going to join Lightning Records at one point as sales director. Um, and he made an offer at the last second, even though they'd already bought the company car for me. Um, and um, yeah, so I joined in January 85. Well, that was around the
0: time they're getting ready to release um, Raid Over Moscow. And I, I heard that you had a bit of a run in with some protesters when you joined US Gold and that guy. Well, yeah.
2: well, yeah, because I mean, the first, you know, the first, I, think, I don't think it's the first day I turned up, it's certainly the first week. It's, I remember it's a miserable kind of half snowy, soggy day, and when I turned up, there was a load of protesters outside, outside the building, with um, with uh, they were um, campaigning for nuclear disarmament, hmm. and they were protesting about raid over Moscow, um, uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I, one of the uh, journalists called me up, and I said, "Come on," I said, "Come on, it's a game. It's like it's like cowboys and Indians. You know, when we were young, it's now." You know, the Cold War, you know, it's, uh, and uh, the head of the CND at the time was Monsignor Bruce Kent, and he was interviewed in the same article, and he called me a horrible little man for my comment. (laughs) So Yeah, so it was uh, an interesting start to the job.
0: Well, talking about U.S. Gold, I mean, I remember, you know, seeing adverts for U.S. Gold and reading about the company, and it always seemed that, you know, you're bringing these big, glamorous American titles over to the U.K. I mean, what was kind of the philosophy behind the company?
2: I mean, it started with one very, very simple idea that Jeff had. So I take no credit for that at all. Um, He, uh, you know, was a a distributor, and he saw all these Commodore 64 games on disc in America. You know, in in England, we couldn't give away the disc. You know, it's about the size of a fridge. Um, And it was 400 pounds or something ridiculous like that. I mean, nobody bought them. And we had a cassette business. You know, so basically went to the States, went to publishers, and said, well, look, give us your disc game you know, and we'll put it out in cassettes in the UK. And it was as simple as that. You know, sometimes that required eight cassettes, as you as you can imagine. And you know, the first games that came through, like Beachhead, Raid Over, Moscow, Dam Busters, and, and several were just really big hits, and then we got Epics later, and then we converted them to Spectrum and Amstrad, and I think yeah, really very, very quickly, after, by like 83, we had like 80% of all the software in america uh Conta 64 software in america at u.s gold because we paid advances um we paid royalties and at the time you know the u.s market was you know so big huge and, and europe was you know whatever you know it's almost like a little add-on so they didn't kind of care you know nowadays obviously it's just you know it's as important as america almost um and there was no china or anything like that in those days um so that was the idea i mean it was as simple as that and we just signed up everything and we And what we promised people was, which obviously battered us a bit in our reputation, is we signed up whole catalogs. We didn't cherry pick, you know, and we had an obligation to kind of release everything. So, you know, alongside a game that's absolutely fantastic, you may have three complete you know, dogs, but we had to release them and we had to market them, uh, which gave us this kind of incredible output of which, you know, some of it was, you know, I mean, suspect is saying it lightly and should never seen the light of day but that was what we offered people and uh it was compelling for u.s publishers at the time
1: well you were saying the u.s market was a a lot bigger than the british one um were the standard of games higher than
2: the british games well the commodore 64 certainly were yeah i mean uh, yeah a lot but but the uk was picking uh, the uk i say the uk because at the time really the uk was the only country in europe that had a decent you know development community there were some in germany but the rest you can forget i mean that was it some uk and and so the uk was getting better and better and uh you know uh kind of catching up but it, it was really kind of the graphics i mean the the, the graphics in the c64 products from america were just just better you know i mean uh and it took the uk uh games development you know sector you know a long time to catch up with that and sometimes never did quite frankly
0: and another company that kind of started doing this kind of thing around a similar time. I mean, um, Elite wasn't much rivalry between U.S. gold and <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, because they were in Warsaw on top of a fish and chip shop, um, <laughs> which I always throw in. Their own, it wasn't really until until they got um, Commando from Capcom and Goulds and Ghost. Because by then, in 86-ish, 86-87, you know, the coin-op conversion business had started. And somehow they got into Capcom and got these two products um, out, uh, out of Capcom. And they were both really, really big hits. So that really, we didn't like that much. And then we, uh, you know, we obviously went after all the, all the Japanese uh, video game companies. And eventually we got every product from Capcom. So we were out to destroy them, yeah, but then we had an attitude, which I, I'm not saying I took with me from Commodore, but kind of, and certainly had. We had an attitude of, you know, we wanted to destroy everybody, and and Jeff famously, famously said in one interview that um, he doesn't know, he didn't know why everybody else bothered to make games. <laughs> 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 you know, so that was our kind of, that was our position, and, you know, our biggest rival of course was Ocean. I mean, Elite, Elite popped in, you know, occasionally, but it's just because they're you know, local, but we didn't want anybody else in Birmingham making games. <laughs>
1: well, what was day to day life like at US Gold? Because it must have been a mad place to work, especially if you're getting whole catalogues of games and having to release them all out in quick succession.
2: Well, it was that. I mean, I, I, mean I, I used to get there very early. At the time I was living in uh, Newport Pagnell, and used to get up in Birmingham at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, because traffic and spaghetti junction and everything else just got the nightmare and and jeff was always in about the same time and most mornings you know bef- before you know 805 jeff would uh, have five new ideas um of which you know maybe one was a good one that's not knocking him because you know he he was very creative at the time and you know he came up with some stuff you know see so that you, you know so you know nearly every day there was probably a good idea that we should be thinking about or doing or following up or, you know, everything else. I mean, life was, I mean, in the end, by 89, it got kind of boring. But, you know, in the early days, it was just a question of that, you know, we were out to conquer. And our sister company was Centersoft. And in the same period that US Gold grew, grew to be kind of number one in the UK and Europe, Centersoft grew to be number one in the UK and Europe. You know, so we had the power of a, of a distributor tied to us i mean so we were in an incredibly advantageous position not only would we see every product that was presented to sensorsoft if we wanted to you know we didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time doing that quite frankly um but we had you know their sales team pushing our products you know putting some other products you know a little you know behind us and doing deals and up you know so we had this kind of awesome power of you know some great games and some dogs uh and the distribution. Facility in in center but life was you know pretty pretty much like the office. You know, I'm not saying I'm i staying with Brent, um, but it was uh, it was pretty normal. It was very pro, you know it's process driven. We we're you know we were probably you know a lot more professional early on than most of the what we'll call at the time software houses. You know, so uh, you know, and we were building and building, and uh, you know, it's always fun to be building. You know, that's that's the best part of I think life. Uh, it's, it's when you're trying to build something and you're being successful at it, and it makes you want more and more.
0: We did kind of touch on Epics before, and I remember you know when Summer Games and Winter Games came out. I mean, they were huge. Yeah. I mean, was, was that like a game changer for US Gold when when those titles came out?
2: <clears throat> well, when I you know when I talk about the graphics earlier in in our uh, in our uh, conversation, you I think I, mean, I obviously there's there's a, a lot of games, but I had Epics in the back of my mind because um, you know Epics products, like you said, Summer Games, Winter Games um world games i mean were i mean just looked um, i mean they looked from a, like, like like they were from the future i mean they were just so great and they played so great epics epics was i mean we didn't get the whole of europe for epics we had um they, their agents kind of broke it up you know somebody in germany somebody in Benelux, and us in the uk and a few odds and sods australia and a few bits and pieces um but for the uk i mean it was, i mean yeah, I mean it was just the best the best brand we handled. You know, um it, it was it was as you, you know, it just it just changed everything. I mean, you know, when you saw something like Summer Games, what was a a UK 64 Commodore 64 development company going to do to compete with that? Nothing. I mean, you just couldn't. So it's just a question of how 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 big the market was. Our our only constraint was it's still a cottage industry. You know, if if it was two thousand and you know nineteen, and we had epics now, I mean that business alone would be worth hundreds of millions or billions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. At the time, the industry was only so big, and it, it was it was okay. It was certainly a game changer. We, I mean, the actually, actually the agents didn't want to give it to us. They didn't like us much at the time. They grew they grew to lo- love me, but at the time they didn't like us much because we were this big, horrible, you know, thing up. Got all the UK, US software houses, but at the Epic's guys told him to do the deal with us. So,
1: what did you look for in a title when you were choosing a release for US Gold?
2: Well, it just it changed. Uh, you know, I so say in the earlier days we were looking for one great product from a range from an American brand, um, and then uh, uh, when the coin up business started, you know, I was very lucky. You know, I was going to all their, the up shows in, in New Orleans. You know tokyo or and um we were just looking for the biggest the biggest coin ops we took a lot that we thought would be big and weren't big because we were trying to we, again it was this kind of mopping up thing in the same way we were mopping up everything from america our goal was to mop up everything from the coin-op industry the one thing that is, people either know or didn't know is ocean the directors of ocean also shareholders of u.s gold I mean that was that was a deal Jeff regretted every day of his life, I think, after that, because they got fifty percent of the company for putting in fifty thousand pounds back in eighty uh, eighty four, I think. To you know, to start to start US gold. Yeah. And so we had a, a thing with uh, Ocean that we wouldn't go after their labels and they wouldn't come after ours. So like we went after Sega, which is the biggest, and, and several others. They went after Taito and others so we didn't we, we never competed so nobody could play off us gold against ocean so ocean got the best and we got most of the best as well i mean activision was there trying to get licenses uh, british telecom were there trying to get licenses but we got most of them because you know we were just this powerhouse
0: I remember, you know, as, as a kid having the U.S. gold release of OutRun, the poster on my bedroom wall. And <laughs> yeah. I think that was like, the first time I'd had movie posters, but that was the first time I had a video game poster on my wall. And that was like, right. that seemed like a big change. And I mean, bringing that kind of huge coin-op hit home. I mean, was that kind of a, a bit of a challenge, bringing these like, you know, massive arcade games to the British home computer platforms? Like, I always wondered what Sega thought of like the, the Spectrum port of OutRun, for example. <laughs>
2: Well, it's funny, uh, 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 a guy that I later, later worked with, a guy called Justin Heber, he was at the shows as well. He was working for Virgin at the time, uh, Virgin Games at the time. And um, I mean, they, they didn't get much, if anything, actually, um, and the stuff that we didn't want. I mean, he sent me a picture of me looking at Outrun and he put a note on it saying, no, Tim, it won't fit on a, a Spectrum. Right which <laughs> I wish I had it actually, but I mean we one was just the biggest thing it was just amazing we had to get it and we had to try and I think we made it you know with with uh, uh, Fergus McGovern rest in peace, you know we made a, a pretty decent game out of it um, the fact that we were going to take something that you know cost five thousand you know dollars as a as a cabinet and put it into a, a spectrum and it was going to look like it was going to look on a spectrum that was no. You know, we didn't think about that because our business was that was our business, you know. And we delivered good code and we delivered bad code. You know, Gauntlet was another one. You know, Gauntlet uh, was a Christmas number one, like Outrun was. You know, when we got that, people said that's not going to work. You know, and it, it it was great. It worked fantastically well. It was a fantastic conversion. But you know, you were delivering something else. We weren't there to deliver Outrun the coin up. we were there to deliver an adaptation adaptation of it onto a. A sinclair and a commodore 64 and an amstrad um you know so how big it was how whether it was operation wolf with two machine guns or outrun with a ferrari it didn't make any difference it's what our game was going to be
1: what was us gold's relationship with the magazines like
2: well we were big advertisers um big advertisers i mean in fact we had a, a deal to book so many ads every month that we sometimes just didn't have the products to, you know, to fill these slots. I mean, with Newsfield, uh, which had Zap and Crash. I think we had we, we were going to do ten ads a month. Um, that was the days of you know, Julian and, and Gary Penn and, and those guys down there. Yeah, I, I never really, you never really knew whether that was buying you a lot of favors. But I guess you know we're all human beings, you know, and you know at the end of the day, advertising pays the bills, not good reviews or bad reviews. They just, you know, sell some magazines. And then, you know, the circulation numbers of these magazines were not, you know, enormous in those days. And maybe that brought us some favours. You know, uh, we had a good relationship with, uh, I mean, most magazines through Danielle Woody, who's still there today and still doing the same thing today. Uh, and she wasn't, she'd never touched a game in life. She wouldn't know how to play a game if it fell on her head. But that, that you know, it was about... Some, you know, it was about that kind of personal touch and being not motherly, because she wasn't that much older than these guys, but that kind of that, that special relationship.
0: Well, speaking of her as well, I mean, I remember, you know, reading stories about how she'd um, she kind of go into maybe a magazine and kind of they'd look at one of the games and not be a big fan of it. But within an hour, she'd kind of talk them round and it actually got yeah. like a glowing review at the end. I mean, she was kind of like it seemed like the face of the company in the magazine. Was that kind of oh, plan?
2: No, oh, no, she definitely was. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, she definitely was. Personally, I, had no, I I wasn't involved in that part of the business. She had a guy working for her called Richard Titzel um, uh, as well. Um, but she, she. I think we had three or four people in PR. Because, you know, if, if you remember at the time, what was advertising? It was an image, three screenshots, uh, a little bit of text. And if we could drag a couple of good quotes that we may have taken out of context accidentally from time to time, uh, you know, like... The greatest game in the world, but it's crap. But we just put the you know, greatest game in the world part. Um, there was nobody you know, advertising you couldn't do a lot with advertising, but it, was, it was very convoluted, you know, there's nothing like we have nowadays, you know. So it was all about PR, it was all about getting good reviews, you know. Likewise, a bad review, you would, I mean, come bad reviews in Newsfield, you, you know, you were dead. I mean, so um, it, PR was, was the most vital part of the marketing department at the time.
0: Well, kind of moving on from um, US Gold, and let, let's get into Virgin then, because I know you joined them in 1991. I mean, initially you were the managing director uh, for the European division of Virgin Games. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it come about? Then Are you going to work at Virgin?
2: Well, that was another stranger. I left the, I left US Gold in 1989 uh, because I was I, I think I I think I felt I'd done everything, and by then, you know, we had obviously a lot of staff, and it was kind of really processed, and it was really boring, and so I was offered an opportunity to start my own company with some guys. Uh, in the u.s it was called tech magic um and it was going to be a sega master system publisher uh because we had relationships with sega we all, uh, the company actually represented sega in europe Mastertronic, and uh, all from frank herman uh, frank herman uh everybody in the industry knew, knew frank um he's a virgin you know master tronic and then virgin master tronic and then he went on to gti and lots of things and uh rest in peace he, he passed away in 2009 um and he ran me up and said tim there's a you know job down at virgin you know do, are you you know are you interested they're looking for an md down there and i said well not really frank you know i've got my own company and you know we've got games coming out could make a lot of money and virgin at the time you know were, i mean pretty crap i mean they had archer mcclain's uh, snooker coming out hmm. but really there was i mean it was a very small small company it had like 16 employees and you know <clears throat> and I wasn't, I wasn't that keen on it so I went anyway he said well come down and have lunch with Robert Devereaux uh, Robert was uh, Richard's uh, brother-in-law uh, I liked Robert a lot and I think he liked me um, but I I still wasn't sure I still wasn't sure of giving up kind of my own company which inevitably is what you, you kind of need to do if you want to make serious money and uh, I stalled it kind of for six months with Robert I couldn't make my mind up And I eventually went, I went, I had lunch with him sometime uh, in in late-ish, 91. And we sat down at a restaurant in Notting Hill. And he said, Tim, he said, before I order, before we even order starters, are you you coming or not? And I was like, that's what you call a close. You know, so you're sitting down for lunch and nobody's ordering, you know. Basically, so if I said, well, I don't think so, Robert, then you know, lunch was off. There's no point in wasting <laughs> his time and money buying me lunch. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And um, I said, yeah, i got, I got one proviso. and It was, it was about commission on Sega cartridges, that which I had with the company I was working, working my own company kind of. And, uh, yeah, so… That's how it came about, really. And I, I, I joined, and I thought, well, you know, what a lot of scruffy load of this lot are, all in jeans and t-shirts. And but in the end, I, I became one of them. Although I was probably better dressed than most of them. <laughs> and uh, out of the nineteen people there, I got rid of seventeen or sixteen. Got lucky because at the same time, Microsoft went out of business, and I was able to get Sean Brennan. He was able to bring some great Microsoft producers, so and some and some studios working with Microsoft. You know, so we we got off to a, you know a great start. We were, you know, one minute I was there with you know a bunch of guys that I didn't really kind of want to be with. Next minute I got Sean, I got products from Sensible Software with Jobs and those guys, um, <clears throat> and we had a kind of portfolio to start working on.
1: Well, Virgin were kind of famed for their rock and roll history with stuff like the Sex Pistols and, you know, yeah. all their original kind of um, music. Was it was it good joining a wider company with well, uh, it was, more mean, culture?
2: Well, it was, it was a fantastic culture. You could basically do anything, anything behind that brand. And people think, oh, it's Virgin. Yeah, okay. You know, we, we, we really pushed it on marketing and lots of other things. Um, but, you know the, the the european company i joined you know had less than a, a million dollars of revenue that the previous year and we got it up to 200 million by 1993 in about two and a half years we got up to 200 million um and that's because we say we got some of the mirrorsoft products we got coinop products you know games were coming out of america like seventh guest and it was great i so say you could you could do anything i mean we we gave the best parties you know, you know, and people, obviously people, I mean, a lot of people tried to copy us, you know, copy our advertising style, which was controversial. You know, we were there to kind of shock you into buying products like Resident Evil, Doom 2, you know, all of these have their own kind of stories. But then when people tried to copy us, our style, if there wasn't a the Virgin logo there, it was kind of like, it was like a misfit. It didn't look right that someone like Interplay would do a teddy bear with a shotgun, someone firing a shotgun through it. It looked like, okay, they're trying to be virgin. Then GTI were using our kind of ad style. And it, it just didn't look right. But when we did it, it was like, yeah, these these are virgin. These guys can get away with it.
0: We kind of got a bit of an insight into that when we had um, Archie McLean on the show, actually. He was talking to us about how he um, he took Jimmy White on tour when Wildwyn Snooker came out. And they right. ended up going to Richard Branson's house. And, um, yeah, Richard got... Um, got Jimmy so drunk that he couldn't even hold a snooker cue anymore. I mean, how much of that kind of excess really happened in the company then? I mean, did it kind of fit in with its rock and roll image?
2: Well, I think by 85, sorry, 95, we were completely out of control. You know, uh, hedonism, sex, drugs, and video games uh, had become, you know, know, like an everyday thing. I'm not saying saying we took drugs every single day, but it became completely hedonistic. You know, and by then we'd sold the company to Blockbuster plus left us alone. We were getting bigger and bigger and dominating in France and dominating in, in Germany. Um, I, I, I had the rest of the world outside of America by then. So I had Japan and Singapore and Australia and everywhere in between. And um, yeah, I mean, we were living the life, you know, we were we were there to have fun, but at the same time, at the same time, and it makes us sound like we were completely mental uh, and out of control. We weren't out of control. I, mean, I, I, I coined it as kind of loosely, loosely managed anarchy at the time At the time, but at the same time we were doing our job. We were making massive hits with resident evil, command and conquer one and, and many others, you know, so we were still, you know, we were still out there along, along with electronic arts, you know, uh, Dominating the business e- equal with electronic arts, bigger than electronic arts in Germany, actually. At the time,
0: well, you think of the 90s, and it was stuff like another you know, word and like loaded, I remember, and it was that lad and kind of culture as well. So, it kind of, I guess, it felt like Virgin kind of fitted in with its time
2: very much. Well, it did. If you remember Viz, yeah, uh, which is still around today, I mean, Virgin Mastertronic launching the Sega hardware used Viz extensively and loaded of course but uh yeah so we we did fit i mean the, the the 90s itself as a decade when you read books on the 90s it was it was a de- uh, a a decade of decadence of self-belief and self-interest self serving you know, self-servitude kind of thing, you know, making you that was, that was the decade. I mean, uh, so any, you know, anything went really anyway. I mean, we did get into a lot of trouble with advertising, but then we didn't care, you know, that's okay. You know, we've done We've done the job because it always took the advertising standards authority about three weeks to ban an advert.
1: Yeah. I was, I was just about to say that actually, because, um, you know, nowadays it's kind of standard to have edgy yeah. advertising and, uh, Back in the days, you got uh, six successive campaigns kind of um, <laughs> taken down by the Advertising Standards Authority. Well, I don't,
2: know, I don't know if it was six or more, actually. I always quote 13, but I may have been you know, exaggerating. Uh, yeah, we did. We, yeah, we had successive ones adver- um, banned. Um, we had complaints from the French government. Uh, I mean, I can't remember all the ads that were banned, but we did one called um, Famous Mass Murderers, Um uh, we had obviously Stalin, Genghis Khan, Hitler, and we put Jack Chirac in, on there <laughs> because he was uh, testing atomic bombs in the French atoll. Wow. and And so the French uh, embassy, you know went to the advertising standards and said, uh, you know, look at this advert with Jack Chirac on it." And they said, yeah, you've got to take the ad down. So actually what we did, we we got a picture of someone else, and I can't remember who it was, and just went round to every billboard. So this was 48 sheet billboard sites at the time, and just stuck somebody else over, Jack Chirac, and left it there. <laughs> and people peeled them off, I imagine. <laughs> Possibly. I couldn't I couldn't comment on that. Scream, I mean, Screamer was another one. We had a game called Screamer. And at the time, there was a lot of joyriding. It was a big, big, big social problem at the time. And, and Screamer... You know, it wasn't so much the picture, which was obviously like a, a kind of a nineteen ninety six Asbo at the time. Um, you know, our text about you know putting your foot down, hammering it, smash it. I mean, that was banned pretty quickly.
0: I even remember reading stories about, um, I don't know how true these are, and whether whether you can you can talk about it, but about Virgin kind of bribing game reviewers, and you know maybe even stories of like drugs being included with uh, with discs for the game to magazines and that kind of thing. I mean, was there uh, any of that?
2: Well, I don't. I don't think we did. I mean, we by then we had Woody. I mean, I I took several people from US Gold because uh, my first objective was to destroy US Gold with Virgin, and I did. If you see that US Gold got sold for nothing in ninety three or four, so I took Woody. I took Bob Kenrick. I took, I took Sue Luciano. I took Lucas Arts. You know, I started to kind of. I mean, all because there, there's an a award award thing called the Indian at the time it was a, a christmas do it was a real piss taken and, and and thing and and you know J- jeff won the us uh, software house a year i wasn't there and he said uh, th- you know three things have happened great for us gold uh, this year and da 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 and da 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 and tim cheney left um you know so i thought okay well we'll see you know so i'm with the virgin power and virgin money and Everybody wanting to work for Virgin, really. I mean, it was. Best. If you, did, if you, it was a great article that Stuart Dinsey did back in um, 2005 about Virgin, and everybody says, you know, Simon Jeffrey, Woody, everybody says it was the best job they ever had, um, which is great because it probably was. It, it's my best job ever, and um, you know, so uh, we um, whether we whether I don't think we sent drugs, we certainly sent uh, animal innards to people. Um, but I don't know, I don't know, honestly I don't, I'm not trying to avoid it, because if I, if I knew we did, I'd say yeah we did, what the hell, but I, I, don't, I don't know if we did that.
1: You must have been to quite a lot of launch parties as well, considering the amount of titles coming out, um, what, what were mm. the wildest ones like, were there some good ones? Uh,
2: we, I mean the, the thing that we always did, at the time there was a big show at Olympia every year, um, and I, is it called ECTS when it moved from Islington to Olympia, and it became a a totally different thing becoming like an american big stand thing and we always went completely overboard on the stand we had naked women outside uh, we had you know we we certainly uh, was the stand to go and have a look at or stare at depending you know what you were looking for um launch parties i guess we had loads i mean i just can't i just can't remember where we always had a christmas party obviously like most companies that was com- you know it was just completely you know it's just mental you know, I, I didn't feel safe there myself, and I was the M- MD. You know, you know, one, one one place we flooded. Wow! You know, uh, in uh, somewhere in the city. I did, yeah, but the launch, the launch party specifically, I honestly can't remember. We took over a, a manor house somewhere in Buckinghamshire, and we turned it into a kind of haunted house, and we put all the kind of seventh guest clues around the house and uh for journalists and other people that was a really good one that was a really good i mean seventh guest again was the first probably for, along with mist you know the first true cd-rom interactive game although it was a puzzle game with live video at yeah. the end of the day. but it, it, it was you know i think it was the one product that richard came to my office and personally promoted got a picture of him and me together with with the game
0: well how hands-on was richard with the company he wasn't very hands-on
2: i mean i met him several times and uh, i used to go down to holland park to his house um <clears throat> it was one of those strange meetings because he he, he would be sitting in a settee i'd be sitting opposite he'd ask me about the business and, and while i was answering these questions people would come in with sign, checks to sign papers to sign and and i think uh, i think i kind of got this from him um but uh, you know uh, I, I was talking about this and that and australia and isn't it great and that but he only kind of picked up the the, the piece that he could see that was good for him mm. right and at the time it's about airplanes version atlantic you know so i remember him picking up about playing games on planes which at the time didn't exist and uh, he asked about whether he could get a kind of nintendos in planes and stuff like that. so he picked the um he just picked up the piece of all that thing that he's probably going to use for himself but i remember being in his house and. Uh, his, his front door was open and I said "You know, Richard, as I was leaving, Richard your front door was open, he said yes okay, he said if they're going to get you, they're going to get you right, I mean there's no security, I mean nothing, it was just a house, he had two houses side by side
0: Well, talking about, I mean, you mentioned Seventh Guest before. Um, You know, the games that Virgin brought out. I mean, you know, we we think about the image and everything that they had, but there was some amazing titles that the company published as well. I mean, you you know, Cannon Fodder and Cool Spot, I remember. You know, the 7-Up game, that was a great platform. A Lion King you had too. I mean, there were some really strong titles coming out. I mean, any kind of memorable stories or memories about those titles
2: that came out? Well, I remember Lion King. I mean, we we started working with Disney. I had the first meeting with them. they had, an, they had the Aladdin film coming out and was stuck, and uh, we got David David Perry coded that in four months, and that became a massive hit. Uh, I remember Lion King cost us ten million dollars as a guarantee, and it you know, became a big hit. Uh, Command and Conquer, a massive hit. Resident Evil. I did a deal with Capcom for ten products, uh, Unseen, <laughs> and one of them was something called Biohazard, which I'd never. You know, it was just another name. I, again, I was there to get Capcom to blow up US Gold because they had Capcom up to that point. And I was just going to blow them out of the water with, a, at the time, a $2 million offer, which was a lot of money. And US Gold certainly was starting to run out of money by then. And they had this game called Biohazard, and it turned out to be Resident Evil, uh, which, you know, we did, it was just a, a name on a list of 10 games that they're going to give us the license for. And, uh, you know, so, you know, deals... Uh, getting lucas arts was a major thing although we didn't have their whole of europe it was the same agents that did epics so they kind of split it up all over the place um yeah well, i mean we did have a, a lot of I mean, cool spot we did a game from mcdonald's called global gladiators yeah right <laughs> which was which, i can't remember if they paid for red like we certainly had the golden arches in it and with the same code we did, dave perry did cool spot and when Sega caught, saw Cool Spot, I remember it's a function we did in Palm Beach, Florida, where we had Muhammad Ali, Virginia Wade, lots and lots of famous, famous golfers and sports people. Um, they saw Cool Spot, and Barry Duffrato at the time was he just saw it and went mental for it. I mean, we, I think we sold six hundred thousand in Europe, and that was a game based on a can of. Uh, Kind of soft drink yeah <laughs> global gladiators didn't sell by the way you well know, these pathetic things like it's kind of uh, like eco warriors which as we know mcdonald's is about to least as least eco as you can possibly find
1: well companies like hasbro viacom and blockbuster all bought shares in virgin um did yeah. the company kind of change when this happened
2: not a lot not a lot really um because when we were finally, I mean, Hasbro bought shares, then Blockbuster bought shares, then Blockbuster bought out Hasbro, and Blockbuster bought the entire company. Uh, they left us alone. They, they put us under Spelling Entertainment, Aaron Spelling's unit, which they bought the previous year, um, left us alone, really. They didn't, they didn't touch us. I mean, the people that started touching the business was Viacom, when Viacom bought Blockbuster. Uh, Viacom didn't like the business at all. You know, they'd already written off 100 million of their own money in Viacom New Media. <clears throat> so they didn't like the games business, and uh, I remember one E3, I had to show Sumner Redstone around the, around the show. Can you, can you imagine? The, can you imagine the pressure of that? <laughs> Sumner Redstone, owner of IACOM, uh come to E3, and I, I had to show him around the stand, this stand, and other people's stands. I mean, God, I couldn't do it now; I'd have a heart attack. And yeah, I mean, I always remember his trousers. He had like like kind of beige trousers. They were like five inches too short no way <laughs> and this was this was a guy that's worth you know, 30 billion you know so <laughs> anyway um so the, the, they didn't interfere with Viacom did Viacom didn't want the business <clears throat> they put us on the road to sell us and we were hard thing to, to sell because unlike most at the time uh, you know the u.s are like 75 percent of business in europe is 25 percent of people you know people like ea and activision and everyone else but we were different to that we were seventy five percent of our business was international, only twenty five percent was Europe. Uh, sorry, was America. So therefore, we didn't kind of fit. We didn't kind of fit any, We didn't kind of fit anybody. In the end, Electronic Arts bought uh, the Westwood Studio and a load of other assets, um, and uh, I did a management buyout after that, which Viacom which paid me eight million to take off the hands. Actually, so why did you leave eventually then? We sold it. We sold it the next year. Yeah, uh, we bought it um, for nothing plus eight million from viacom plus them writing off a seven million debt um and uh next year we sold it to titus um and i met a spanish girl and uh i was getting married so i moved to spain i had a two and a half year golden parachute basically if, if i don't i mean they were paying me but you know just just to hang around as long as i didn't do anything they would pay me at the end of the time uh so i came to spain and eventually bought or, you know, the Spanish business from them when they got in trouble in uh, 2002 2003 because yeah, it just became it's just bad, it, it became really bad. I mean, they lost the Virgin brand for one thing, which they, they would know. So, I went to Richard, I remember calling him, he was in the bath, and said, uh, Richard Timche, I said, uh, I, got this, I bought this company in uh, in Spain, Virgin Interactive Entertainment in Espana. Uh, we're going to lose the Virgin name because it, you did, right? I said, can I, can I get it again? He said, Sure, we called it Virgin Play. Which I wish I had now, now because that that name was fantastic. You know, Virgin Play at the time was okay, good, but nowadays that name would be awesome.
0: Well, I mean, you know, you you got so many great stories from your time at Virgin. I know I, I do remember seeing a couple of years ago. You're going to write these down into a book. I mean, is there still kind of a a plan for you to do that at some point?
2: Well, I tell you what, I watched um, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, and, I, and I'm not comparing myself with him or anything he did or. Well, most of the things he did. I didn't. I'm not comparing myself for him. And I thought, well, the Virgin story is a great story because not not only the business side, you know, how this one million became two hundred million, sold for a quarter of a billion, equal to Electronic Arts, bigger than MBO. So, I mean, the, the business history, how those the game, like the games you've mentioned, like Seventh Guest, Command and Conquer, all those things came through. Uh, but the the other side was this kind of hedonistic thing that, which I say by 895 was. Really, I mean, uh, I I, I remember the guys from America came over, you know, had a chat with me on the side saying, Tim, watch it, you know, Viacom are looking. And my lawyer tried to get me fired, but she got fired. Um, And the uh, (laughs) the number two at Viacom said he'd like to go over to England and kneecap me. Uh, um, And then he gave me a pay increase because they tried to sell the company and I had Capcom in my pocket. because Capcom was down to me, personal relationship and um so yeah, i just it'd be a great book the the, the the thing is that it was kind of i got I, I mean it's like i did it i was going to do something on kickstarter i wanted fifty thousand because it's you know you know about journal writing books right i mean it's a long yeah. long hard hard job so i wasn't gonna do it for nothing i did i've done a book for nothing it's called Luton boy about growing up in Luton. um and you know it was it was of it was in me and i just wanted to get it right here and people like the book and everything else but um and uh and it got off to you know good funding dave perry fund put some money in and i mean the first guy to put money was actually simon byron um but there was a there were people out there trying to scupper it because they didn't want those stories coming out because they were now parents with children of their own and they and, and it wasn't uh but people were, even if i changed the names people would say well that's him oh that's him you know so Uh, you know, and I, I I, I just stopped. There was no point. There were too many people that didn't want the book to be, and people powerful that didn't want the book to come out. So, you know, one day, one day, maybe if somebody will walk in door and say, Tim is a 50,000, go write it, go write it, you know, just like the bitmaps, bitmap publisher or something. I don't know. But, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't know. I mean, it would be an amazing book. It would be a fantastic book. And it would be such a thing of the time, the times, And of one company that under the the headline virgin got away with blue murder and just try you know we didn't accept anybody's rules we expect about that you you made a disc and the disc was round and it went in a box I mean that was it Mm -hmm. everything else we were making up we were doing something different we were trying things of course things don't work you know some things they backfire on you but at the time we were trying anything to be distinctive, to be different.
0: Well, as I say, you know, you can't keep a good story down. Hopefully, uh, we will get the full story at, at some point in the future.
2: Well, I might get, I might get assassinated before then, but anyway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what are you doing these days then, Tim? So I know you're in Spain. What's kind of your life these days? What well, no,
2: no, Nowadays, uh, I uh, act for studios looking for money. Which, you know, can be a soulless task, as we all know, because money's money. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've got several studios. I, look, I go to, you know, several hundred publishers. I look at state funds. You know, I try and find money for, for studios, uh, you know, games. Um, uh, I, I quite, I, you know, I quite like doing it. Everything takes 10 times longer than you want. Uh, which frustrates me because in my day, somebody walked in with a game and said, "I want a game. I, we, we, want, we want X thousand for this game." You'd sign it up in the afternoon. Life is not like that anymore. Um, but no, I, I, I quite like doing it. I meet some nice people, and um, and I've got some. I've got some really great products. Um, you know, I mean, they're probably a year away now, but um, really good products.
0: Well, Tim, it's been wonderful reminiscing with you. Thank you so much for uh, you know sharing those incredible stories about you know those those companies that we grew up. You know. Idolizing so much back then, and uh, shaping our childhoods as well. So it's been it's been great to have you on this week.
2: I, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the, you know the walk down memory lane, and uh, you know some of the kind of things you picked out were, I mean, there's there's probably a hundred more. Uh, that there's a story behind that, as I say, may, maybe I'll write up one day. But you picked some good stuff, and you know they were about how you know the industry evolved, and uh, you know obviously U.S. gold emergence part of it, but they, they were all kind of evolutionary points. And, change things that were changing the business and and now i've created this business that what we have now is a monster anyway
0: absolutely well thank you so much for coming on tim
2: i enjoyed it